Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. Hey guys, welcome to Unboxed. I'm Connie Nam, your host and founder of Astrid Mew. Today, my guest is Thea Green, founder and CEO of Nails Inc. She has transformed the nail treatment industry over the last 20 years. This conversation shows that if you adapt and change at the right time, you can build a global business. My theory was if I can do my nails at home in 10 minutes, why can't a professional do my nails in 15? In no other environment would you be told you have to get everything perfect. The demand is there. This product just doesn't exist in the UK at the moment. Welcome, Thea. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Yeah, so nice to have you here. I'm really excited about this conversation to hear about all of your multiples of businesses and brands that you've set up. Start by telling me about yourself. I'm the founder of Nails Inc. I started my business back in 1999, so a really long time ago. It probably makes me quite old. And um, I used to work in magazines. I used to work in Daily Mail and then Tatler Magazine. I went to Fashion College in London. And then um, when I was working at Tatler, I had the idea for Nails Inc. Where did the inspiration come from? It was a mixture, really. So it was um, seeing um, nail brands and nail salons in the US and seeing the fact that women just got their nails done, you know, kind of every week as, you know, kind of regardless of income. Um and seeing the nail brands, you know, that were popular in the UK were all kind of American brands and how you could do that in a different way. And then at the time, because it was back in 1999, it was sort of dot-com, you know, era. But it was also the era of like all things American working. So that's literally, you know, when all the American coffee shops came over. Um, so it was that kind of everything American felt so relevant for the UK. It always felt like we would do whatever they were doing like a year later. Oh, that's so interesting because it feels like it's the other way around now. I agree. But back then I definitely thought, you know, I don't know, the US was just a big inspiration, sort of melting pot of ideas and that, you know, if, if it was working well there, it would work well here and someone just hadn't got around to doing it yet. Did you have to do a lot of education around getting nails done or it was just easy because people just followed what Americans did? I think it had to be affordable so that people would be able to come in and do it regularly. The women that we um, interviewed and we did focus groups before we started the business were very focused on the fact they'd got their nails done maybe, I mean, literally once or never in their life. And it would be for like their wedding day or, you know, a huge event. And they loved getting their nails done. Some people also answered that they got their nails done whenever they went to New York. So that was a really nice thing where they'd say, as part of my kind of New York tour, as well as going to this restaurant or doing X, Y, Z, they would, they would automatically think of like, I must go and get a manicure. So I was like, okay, so if you make it available, affordable, inviting, and a kind of pit stop that you could do, you know, working girls, you know, kind of 15 minutes at lunchtime and still grab, you know, grab your salad, then, then that would be inviting. The speed, I think, was an issue here, which was manicures were slow. They were luxury and they were slow and they took 45 minutes. So you're never going to do that weekly if you're, you know, busy working person. So it was all about being speedy. And how quick was yours? 15 minutes. Um, which was actually faster than anything we saw in the US, but it was definitely coming at it from a kind of consumer angle to go, well, my theory was if I can do my nails at home in 10 minutes, why can't a professional do my nails in 15? Because all the manicures that we interviewed said, it, you know, it takes half an hour to do a good manicure, full manicure. And I was like, but I do mine and they look quite good after 10 minutes. So if you had an extra five minutes and you're professional and you've been trained, why wouldn't you do a better version than me? So that was kind of the challenge. I think sometimes, I'm sure like you, it's quite nice to come to a business as a consumer, as a customer and go, 
challenge the norm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's how all founders get started, right? Exactly. Yeah. You and know, this is this is a gap. This is how I would do it. Actually, the ones in the States probably were more like half an hour for a manicure, but I think the culture there was people were so used to having it done. Was and I was you like, wanted to make it accessible. Really people, accessible, yeah. really affordable, quick, great products. Always the idea of having a brand and a range of products that would be able to live outside the nail bars. Um, and those products could live in like retail environments. And obviously it was the early days of .com. So I was, you know, definitely like, well, the product can live on .com even if the service can't. So yeah, I think always, always with the idea that the brand and the product would become bigger than the nail bar stores. So how did you get started? Was it the nail bar that came first or so was it So it was the both products? together. So yeah. we launched our first store, which was on South Morton Street in Mayfair. You know, that's kind of busy cut through between Oxford Street and Bond Street. It was a very dense, you know, then office population. Um, and then we followed up afterwards with stores around the city. Um, kind of financial districts. And we raised money through seed investors. We did everything in in one go, you know, so we, we had a range of branded products as well as the uh, manicure stores. And actually the first nail bar probably had enough product to fill about 10 stores and we had one location at the time you know we had because there's like minimum I don't know if it's the same in your business like minimum quantities you know that we have to buy um so actually it sort of put the pressure on that we had to get the formula right and open up the nail bars pretty quickly yeah how did you go about pitching to investors because back then I don't know like um, yeah you know how available funds were and especially yeah. for a lifestyle category yeah it was interesting because everyone we went to see I guess anyone sort of institutional said it needs to be nailsinc.com, not nailsinc. We were like, okay, well, it's it can be nailsinc.com. That will come. Because this it was a dot com boom, right? So yeah. It was the start of that boom, 99. So it was like, well, that can come. But first of all, it needs to be, um, it's about a service. It's like, it's the same thing as the coffee shop. You know, you're not asking um, Starbucks or Pret to be starbucks.com. Like it's Starbucks and you go in there and you grab your coffee and it becomes part of your routine. This is the same thing. So we definitely got turned down by lots of people. And then we did it through, in the end, all kind of angel investors, like private individuals that liked it, that understood it. A couple of females, mainly guys, that I think understood it, you know, understood or, or spoke to other, um, you know, kind of friends, family, colleagues that went, yeah, I do that. I do it every week. And the, and the focus group information was really important because people went from, I've only ever had one manicure or no manicures or only done it in New York to, yes, I do that every week. If that was available, I'd have a manicure every week, every two weeks. You were like, okay, the demand is there. This product just doesn't exist in the UK at the moment. What were the early years like? Challenging, like really hard. You know, I think, um, I don't know about you, but in those first few years, I think you think about being a huge success and quitting like by the hour. You're like, by the hour you go from, this is going to be enormous. We're going to take over the world to, oh my God, we're not going to be able to pay everyone's yeah, salaries absolutely. this month. I mean, I think it's like real highs yeah. and lows. You need to be really patient, don't you? Real, it's funny, actually, I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone said, actually, success is all about patience more than anything else. And I thought it really is patience more than, you know, you kind of use all those words of like stamina and entrepreneurial and da, da, da. But it is patience, yeah. isn't it? In the I end, guess some people call it grit or resilience, but it grit is Grit and resilience. You really do have to wait and you have to build something that people are excited about. So, you know, we quite quickly went from um, high street stores to opening in department stores. And that model was just financially much better for us. Um, less of the heavy rents because we were a startup. We were having to pay rent deposits. We were eating up cash too quickly with these rent deposits because um, we didn't have the covenant. So opening in a department store and then taking a percentage of your revenue 
rather than, uh, you know, the kind of the fixed rent. And also what I liked about that was, you know, kind of good weeks, bad weeks, that whole process, you know, they were taking a percentage of what you took. So you could build it and you could start on a number and build it over time versus... You also have the captive audience that come to the department. You've got a captive audience and it also made the brand feel bigger. So I think it really helped like build the brand and, and, and get people to experiment with the actual product. Because I remember when we first opened, Phoenix was our first department store in Bond Street and we were next to the Chanel counter. And I remember thinking, that's great in the fact that you're here next to like Chanel and Yves Saint Laurent, you know, it's those kind of beauty brands then. And it's telling the customer that you are in that mix. And I remember a lot of customers were like, oh, I think I know Nails Inc. already. And I was like, interesting, we've only been open a few weeks. But, you know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. And maybe it's just once you see it in a beauty hall, you believe it's a brand. And I think that was really helpful to sort of be you know, amongst those massive beauty brands. Yeah, um, sitting next to the right people, with the right guys, it's yeah. so important. And I'm sure it? you have that when you're in your standalone stores, you have so many stores, you know, it's like being next to the right people gives a yes. brand perception immediately. It tells your audience straight away. Chanel was also an interesting one to be next to because they were known for doing good nail varnish, you know, mm. like interesting colors, um, you know, more than anything, having fashion trends. And it was nice to have this kind of, you know, we had, I don't know, a hundred shades of nail polish. So if you were going over to Chanel to buy a nail polish and then you saw Nails Inc's hundred shades, it's like, maybe that's why I should be buying nail polish. And that was like, you know, great as well from a brand perspective. I guess telling people that if you're an expert in one thing, like, you know, we're an expert in nail polish, we're Nails Inc, we know nail polish. So we're actually, we're stronger than all these other guys in nail polish because that's all we do, which is what we did, you know, in our business for a very long time, just nail polish. I think you can build a brand quite nicely from that. And then using it and showing people in the services and you get this amazing demo time to show people how it works and how much better their nails look to encourage that sort of purchase after they've had their service. Yeah, absolutely. But now you've shut down all your nail salons yeah, and only you're focused have one. on products. We, you just have we one. We have one in Selfridges. Yeah. We were in a lot of the department stores that also died, you know, like the House of Fraser and Debenhams mm. and some of those chains that didn't make it, sadly. So we were in um, some of those those retailers that, you know, are no longer. It's funny, actually. I always think there's like elements of Nails Inc. that are like exactly the same from day one. Like have a, have a service, have a professional product, focus on nail polish, be trendier than the kind of more corporate brands, make sure the products are easier to use. That's like core Nails Inc. value never changed on day one. And then there's all these things. I'm sure you're the same where you have to just like madly adapt. So it's like nail bars were, served us really well for a purpose in time in terms of building the brand, engaging customers, sharing your products with customers, talking to your customers. Like you have 15 minutes to talk to a customer and talk to them about your brand. It's a long time in retail. So nice. And then department stores declined, really. They got quieter. You know, not some of the key ones, but a lot of the department stores and certainly the ones that closed down became quieter. It wasn't the channel that people were in. Everyone was buying those products on .com. And then there's also like a boom in terms of like little local high streets where you've got these, you know, popped up low price, you know, nail bars that are very near where you live potentially. Maybe you want to do it on a Saturday or a Sunday and you don't want to go into the city, wherever that city was. So I think that we had to adapt. And I remember for a while, I think if I was doing it again, I wouldn't fight for so long. I fought for a really long time to kind of keep the nail bars open. I thought it was like essential to our heritage and who we were. And, you know, it would make customers think we were closing down if we shut down stores. And I don't know how you feel now, but now, you know, like closing down a store that's not profitable and building something that is and being where the customer is and serving the customer the best way, whether it's 
in different retail outlets. Like, you know, we sell our products now in Boots and Superdrug. It's, they're actually probably more available than they ever would have been in the nail bars. Like we had 50 nail bars at the point in time. We're now in hundreds of Boots and hundreds of Superdrugs and same in the US, Target, you know. When did you make that switch and how did you make that hard switch? Yeah, so I think I fought it for a bit too long in terms of, you know, we, you know, we closed a couple, but we generally kept nail bars open as like essential as part of the brand. It was also a big part of the turnover of the business. Because I would have thought the same, right? Yeah. Like it's part of the experience you can sell, even if you're not making profit. Like if I were you, exactly. that's probably how I would have like justified it. I did for a long time. And then I think you go, well, this is... You know, running anything that's not profitable is really hard work. I don't know if you've had any experience about that, but, you know, running anything that's loss-making yeah. takes the same amount of effort, if not more, than something that's profitable. And yeah, I think Because you I have just, to constantly justify it, don't you? You have to justify it, and you're always trying to fix it. And I think I had a sort of moment where I went, um, I was in a department store meeting, and they were telling us that the sales were in decline. And I remember saying to them, you know, it's funny that you say that because I come into your store and we're the busiest concession on the ground floor. Mm. Like we're busier than anyone else. So how's everyone else doing? And I don't think I'd ever really asked that. So I was like, if mm. we're 5% down, where's everyone else? Because we're busy. Like we're still got tons of people yeah. in the nail bars and you've got less people coming through your door, but I think we're capturing as many of those people that we possibly yeah. can. And then I think when you ask that question, you're like, okay, so hold on a second. Everyone is doing worse than they did last year. Why would I fight for this? Why would I fight to be in an environment where you know everyone's going, everyone's numbers are reducing. So... What are you going to do to like get your numbers up? And you have to fight for a while. Have you not thought about going back to the high street, opening your own salons? Yeah, potentially. But you know what we, I think as a business, we've become such a product business. So yeah. Nails Inc. is now kind of, you know, stocked all over the world. We have a um, distributor in Japan. We're just um, launching with someone in the Middle East at the moment. We um, have a European distributor. You know, we're sold extensively in the US through, yeah, you know, retailers incredible. like Target. We're about to launch in Walmart. In the end, a founder is one person, right? And you have these great teams around you, but you're one person. And how many different pieces can you split yourself into? And I would just go... I feel like we're now really good at developing nail ranges. We've got USP, we've got different products. We've taken it back to where it all started. Like we're stocked in these major US retailers like Target and Walmart, where, you know, the brands that we, you know, looked at from the very beginning, OPI, SE, Sally Hansen, where they all were, and we were too small in the beginning to ever be there. And we're filling that gap and US buyers are going, this is a different proposition and different range of products to to what's available in, yeah, in these massive corporates. Yeah, and your products are so innovative. Thank you. You have so many innovation and you've got those like nail art pens, exactly. which I love. And you have all these like wacky collaborations. Exactly. I think you just go, well, if I'm going to do a great job at that, you know, how many pieces can you split yourself in? And I think we've become a, I think our office now is a creative team that are creating product, developing product, talking to our end consumer, talking to the retailers about those products and marketing them. And really, of course, there's lots of other elements in terms of like operations and finance, but really that's what our office has become. Running the nail bars is a really big operational piece and running, you know, any of those kind of service businesses is a really operational piece. And I think you just have to like really do that and do that well and probably not run a range of, of products at the same time. I think, you know, that's probably better served that you're just thinking about service and manicures all day long. And I guess my brain was thinking about manicures less and more about how I could give you that product through a dot-com site and you do it yourself at home. It's a different part of brain, isn't it? Yeah. Like with, the, with the product, it's very creative. Yeah. And with nail salons, it's very much people. Driven. Yeah. And business is a bit like children. Like, you know, they kind of grow up, they evolve. And, and you know, the nail bars really for us for so long were this marketing piece. You go, well, 
well, how would we market in a different way through innovation? Like you say, you know, we do these wacko collaborations. You're like, okay, well, so if we need these kind of like interesting marketing touch points for our customers, well, how else would we do that? What's your thought process, by the way, in your collaborations? Because I remember like your recent one was Cheese It. I thought yeah. that was like so wacky, but it yeah. was so amazing. Yeah, we've done some really fun ones. We've done like Cheese It, we've done Fruit Loops. We have a really big US one coming out. Um, in like just a few weeks. You also did Percy Pig. Percy Pig in the UK, which was with M&S exclusively, super fun. We have a few thought processes. So we, first of all, we only partner with brands that really want to partner. So we've learned that the tough way. So that's like a lesson, which is if you collaborate with someone that just wants a licensing fee and they don't actually want to market those products with you and um, use both of your brands and both of your audiences to talk about those products, then we're not going to do it. So we've been approached recently by a big, you know, kind of conglomerate, you know, massive brand, you know, household brand, and they um, aren't prepared to do the marketing piece that would all be done by us. And we're like, well, that's just a waste. Like you've got millions of subscribers and followers and mm -hmm. a brand that's known globally. So actually, if we're going to partner together, we want that hit from you. Yeah. Like we want, like for us, it's marketing, you know, so, yeah. you know, the, the collaborations are profitable. Um, some of them are stocked in retail. But actually, our thought process is we work with people that are much, much bigger than us to give us brand exposure. That's like a, a big piece of it. And then they have to want to partner. They have to be much bigger than us and they have to want to partner. And then we like it out the box, like the, the mm. unusual. So we're not trying to do um, collaborations. Um, not that we wouldn't, but like, you know, TV, film, those ones that are like lots of our competitors would be doing, mm. they'd be stocked in the same stores. You yeah. know, whether it was nail polish, there might be a lipstick brand doing that. We like those ones that are very newsworthy. So like we have that, you know, in, in the States, they're like, what would get you on page six? And, yeah. You know, with our so US you're agency. looking for that shock, shock factor. We want a little bit of shock factor. We, we need it to be a great product. So mm. we do want, you know, like we want the color to be fantastic. We want it to talk about both brands. We want the customer to be really engaged with it and to love it. But we want it to be surprising. We want it to be like, oh, I wouldn't have thought that. Couldn't imagine those two brands together. And then we want to talk through both brands. Like we want it to be really relevant for Nails Inc. and really relevant for the other brand. So yeah, Percy Pig was exclusive to Marks and Spencer's and it's Percy Pig centered. It's interesting doing those collaborations because you have to work with the, the brands as well to get their, you know, you get their bottled scent. So Percy Pig comes with a, you know, specific code and it's a bottled scent that like, you know, you then oh, that's um, so interesting. try to put into your nail polish and you go back and forth to get it to, because it, it then has to be specifically that scent. And with nail polish, it, it doesn't smell until it's dried down. But it's getting behind those personalities. Like we're not trying to, with collaborations, just put someone's logo on a bottle. I think, you know, again, that would be in our list of rules of like what not to do when we collaborate. Like just plonking someone's logo on a bottle, what would that do for us? That's like, I don't think that drives anything for us. So for us, we're always looking for how much marketing will they do? How much marketing will we do? Can we talk to our shared audiences? That's the key. Then you get new customers. Yeah, and just great fun marketing, right? Two, then, two great brands come together and... Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I always get so excited by your collaborations. Oh, thank you. It. It's a big part of our business, actually. We, I mean, we have a weekly collaborations meeting as an office, like, you know, to, to talk about either the status of existing collaborations, new ones that have come in. Um, we now get, it's interesting, once you start doing collaborations, anyone that does them, you'll then get pitched to by lots of other brands. So once people know you're, you know, you're open to them, you'll, you get quite a lot of, um, other brands that come and approach you. I feel like the nail industry, there's been so much innovation generally, yeah. right? What are your thoughts around it? And how do you keep up with that? Because you've yeah. always been on the forefront. How, how do you do that? How do you approach innovation? I, in I think probably like you, I barely go to sleep and I don't, I don't get any rest. <laughs> um, that's how you stay innovative, right? You work, I mean, being innovative is a really hard job. Like you work, it sounds really glamorous and really fun. It is so hard to constantly come up with new ideas and you 
rack your brains and you look for inspiration all day, every day, and you never are not thinking about the next, the next, the, the, like the newness. So it sort of sounds like one of those like dreamy jobs, doesn't it? You know, like head of innovation <laughs> or innovating product. It's the most fun bit of the job. And I, for me, it's the most fun. It's the bit I love the most. And it's also the hardest to yeah. do because constantly coming up with something yeah. unique and that is a constant pressure in the business. Yeah, and I um, don't think you can have a role of head of innovation or no. like whatever. Because if you're forced to innovate, you can't innovate. No, you're never able to switch off from innovation, are you? So like, I remember in like the early days of Nails Inc., you know, it was kind of easier because you had this range of product and really you just need to build out the color range. So you could be inspired by anything, like a napkin in a restaurant, a great fashion color in on the catwalk. And then when you have a good core range of colors, You'll be able to take those colors, you know, when different trends come up and kind of, you know, remarket them, repurpose them, talk about them, bring them to the forefront. And we develop new colors all the time. But then you also have to go, well, what does it feel like? What's the mood? Why is it different? So like the Manny pen, for example, you know, the idea behind that is an art pen. It's, it's designed on like a sort of, you know, a Sharpie art pen. It's completely designed for nail, but it's designed so that it's not um, a traditional nail polish that's in that formula, because the whole point is I wanted people to be able to, to use a pen the way you would use a Sharpie. So whatever, I don't know how artistic you are. I'm not particularly great at art, but whatever I can draw, whether it's a heart, a star, a dot, stripes, I can do the same with that Manny pen as I could do with a Sharpie. Yeah, it's so intuitive. And that it's so easy to use, whereas, you know, you can do pens that are traditional nail polish, which then means that actually I need to be a nail artist or an artist or someone that, you know, can do that skill. I have to have an art skill. And that the, the point of the Manny pen is anyone can do a French manicure in a second. And then you seal it with a top coat and you're in. And that's, or anyone can do a stripe or a dot or, you know, look at a piece of nail art on Instagram, have a selection of Manny pens and create anything you want. Because like sophisticated nail art is like spots, stars, stripes, hearts. You know, it's, it's quite, it's really quite basic, but it's using multiple colors. And that's what the Manny pens allows you to do. It makes you look like you've done this really professional thing, but it's the same as using a Sharpie. And I remember always in the process being like, it has to be as simple as a Sharpie and that's how it's going to work. And that's that kind of thinking like a customer, right? That's going, well, I don't know how to use a nail art set. Despite the fact I run a nail business, like using a nail art set is complicated. Using a Sharpie equivalent is like really easy. Yeah. Everyone can do it. And you need loads of different equipment. And you need equipment. And, and also you have to be that person that loves doing that level of detail. I think you do need to be quite artistic. So we've got lots of customers that love doing those things. But I think, you know, most customers just want it to be quick and easy and, you know, they're time poor and they want, you know, instantaneous results. It's also a really affordable product in our range. You know, it's like five pounds, you know, so it's a great entry price point and also a great price point to, you know, bring in, you know, those younger customers that um, I'm sure you have the same in your business. Like, it's nice to have some of those products, like anyone can afford. It's, you know, it's it's five pounds. It's super affordable. Yeah, absolutely. And aside from Nails Inc., you have multiples of other brands. Tell yes. me all about them. So we have Nails Inc., then we have um, Incredible, um, which is a mask brand that sits alongside Nails Inc. in quite a lot of our U.S. retailers. Um, it's typically sort of all in the masking world and very focused on the US market. Then we have Holler and Glow, which is stocked in Superdrug in the UK and also in Target in the US. And it's again, um, a masking brand. So it's like innovative masking. So a lot of the kind of DNA behind Nails Inc in terms of like, okay, how do you look at the mask market and do it differently? Um, we're now expanding Holler and Glow into other ranges like skincare and potentially cosmetics coming. So it's like a really, you know, kind of fast track brand in the US growing really quickly for us. And it's fun and playful. And it's, it's really derived from the idea of, you know, both myself and my team have ideas outside of nail polish. Like, you know, 
you know, you see all these other kind of cool ideas in beauty or you see white space and you go, oh, you know, that can't be us because we're nails ink. So we're, you know, purist, we're nails ink. And then it's like, well, well, what if we did other things now? What if we had another brand that we can do it in? You know, nails ink is always going to be a nail brand. It's, you know, its name is, means it's limited to that, to that environment and it's a specialist in that environment. So what limits it makes it great. Whereas, you know, kind of expanding into other brands is really exciting. Does the same um, team work on these other brands? Yeah, so we have thought about multiple times because everyone's very busy. I'm sure like your company too, everyone wears like 10 hats a day. And we have thought about how you kind of split it up. And, you know, if you were doing it again, would you you know, kind of split it up as a nails ink team and a holler and glow team? And then I think the creativity actually across everyone working across all the brands and the communication that that brings is it works better for us. I think you could do it either way, but for us, everyone working across all the brands is really helpful. And the people and the brands inspire mm. each other. You know, you go, well, that works so well in Holler and Glow. What's the, even though it's different product, what's the nails ink equivalent? Like, why did that get so much tension? Why did, you know, consumers really engage in it? What was it? Was it because the packaging was neon? And you go, okay, well, that's a lesson we can use across all of our brands, you know, or did that product sell really well at Christmas because it looked more elevated and it wasn't so like traditionally festive. It just, you know, those sort of things you go, okay, well, we learned that lesson. Why did that brand do better at that time than the others? Entrepreneurs and founders, like we like doing new things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we don't like standing still. Yeah. So having we always have 10,000 ideas floating 10,000 ideas. <laughs> and having more than one brand for me allows you to have mm. those, you know, I have ideas, you know, outside of nail polish and I, yeah. I want to do it. But it breathed new life into, I think, me and my business by opening up because I, I don't know if you have it at Astro Mew, but Nails Inc. had an awful lot of rules that I don't think our customers knew, but we had them as rules that were like, Nails Inc. can only ever do X, Y, and Z, and it can never be that because it's this and it's that. And we had all these like internal rules that I don't think we ever talked about or marketed or shared with our customer. They were just like, I don't even know why they existed. Like, well, what are the rules. examples? Well, I guess also like price point. You know, Nails Inc. is a premium brand stocked in department stores. Therefore, you know, it will always have a product range that's kind of 15 pounds plus. And then we launched Holler and Glow and you see the boom in beauty in that kind of under 10 pound price point. Mm. It's just enormous. And you go, well, Nails Inc. is supposed to be this like young, innovative, talks to everyone brand. Are we talking to everyone if we're 15 pounds? Or are we actually, you know, do we need to be thinking about, has the market moved on? Mm. Should we have some lower price point products? Could we challenge ourselves to get better pricing on our cost of goods to bring everything down to our consumer? So I think pricing was kind of a key one. You know, can we go to a broader group of people if we bring our pricing? Can we open up in Boots and Superdrug rather than, you know, uh, just the department stores if we had that price point? I don't think we would have ever got there on Nails Inc. alone because you just think Nails Inc. is Nails Inc. And mm. it's always been that way and it serves its customers and that's what it is yeah. and that's its position in the marketplace. Yeah. And when did you create those rules? I think as you build a business, right? I don't know if you have it, but as you build a business, you you know, you have these kind of key brand, you know, that you think is, is very relevant to your brand. Yeah. And then I remember we did an exercise once in the office years ago and we were talking about pricing and I remember asking everyone in the office to empty out their makeup bag and tell me what what prices things were. And we had these really funny like chats where everyone would be like, they'd pick up a piece of bacon and they'd go, oh, I think it's somewhere between like 10 and 20 pounds. And I was like, wow, you don't really know what your product costs. So actually we're sort of wedded to this nails, you know, department store luxury. It needs to be kind of 15 pounds, not in the kind of mass channel. Then you're like, does anyone know when they buy a nails ink nail polish, if you asked our top customers how much a nails ink nail polish is, do they actually know the answer to it? And I think a lot of people don't. Beauty's a funny one, isn't it? You kind of go, well, I know it's less than 20 pounds or I know it's less than 30 pounds, but they didn't know the price, like the proper price. And I remember just thinking, okay, maybe it's just about being where the consumer is. Maybe you have to be flexible on price because 
you just want to be where your customer is all the time. And where your customer shops does change, right? That's the one thing I would say about a retail business is where our customer was when we started the business and where she or he is today is different. And How I think, did it change? Well, I think we very much started off as a department store business. Beauty took a while to work on .com. I think, you know, people for a long time really wanted to test the shade and see the shade. So .com was a slower build, I think, in beauty. And obviously now it's absolutely huge. You know, we all buy our beauty on .com, like it's part of our lives. And luxury brands started selling in really mass, right? You know, like Boots launched luxury brands into their beauty area, which means you're then bringing in a different type of customer or the same customer that shops in Boots is now going to buy what she buys in a department store while she's in Boots and she's going there anyway. So I think, you know, the high street always sort of evolves and develops a little bit. I think you always have to keep considering where your customer has moved to. What was the most challenging moment in your career? Oh my God, I've had millions. Have you had millions? I've had millions. <laughs> I think raising money in the beginning is tough. I think raising money is hard. How long did it take? And what was so tough about it? Was it was months. It was not, you know, it was not years. It was months. So I guess, you know, it's relatively quick, right? But it's stressful and you've got this idea and you're yeah, so passionate. And when you're doing it, it is, um, it feels really long. Because for me, it took me six months to get yeah, that first angel. Not long. It, which is not long, but it's six months away from your business. Six months away from your business. And, and you don't really have a big team at that time. Right? Exactly. And as many people say no as say yes, right? So it's challenging. You have a lot of no's. And then you just have glitches. I think what you learn in your business is you don't sweat the small stuff. And, and actually, you don't really sweat the big stuff, right? I'm sure, you know, like we have challenges in our business. I don't know if it's every day anymore, but certainly every month, right? You sort of know that you'll manage it, you'll solve the problem, your team will solve the problem, you'll solve the problem, you'll come together, you'll sort it out. Most things through a bit of, you know, like you said before, grit, hard work, a rational conversation with whoever it needs to be, get resolved. And you stop, you, you end up with this huge tolerance, don't you, for stress, where you actually don't find stress stressful. I do think that's a really odd thing about people that set up their businesses. Like you don't really find stress stressful anymore. Yeah. You're used to dealing with like huge things. I don't know if internally our bodies are all like, <laughs> we must have massive cortisol like I, uh, I wonder lumps inside yeah us, right? I wonder if inside you're like <laughs> when you hear these you know these moments in your business that you know things that you know concern you or whatever it is I wonder if inside like you know something's going on but outwardly and how I think you know if you ask someone how they feel I don't feel very stressed in a stressful situation and I think you do learn that as you go on and run your business and so yeah I think I have challenges all the time but you know it's really, really cliche, but all of those tough things and those difficult things is what you learn from. And you don't, as a founder, spend a lot of time focusing on the things that are going right. I always think if I, like, if someone could like, have told me, do you realize that as a founder, you're going to spend all your time focusing on what's going wrong? Like everyone else in the office will celebrate the success, the great thing, the thing that's happened. And you'll celebrate, you know, the rest of the team, but then you have to come back very quickly and go, this is wrong. I need to fix this problem because yeah. the stuff that's going well doesn't need much of your attention. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to tell the team like all about it because no, it's you have like, to, if you can you know, sort it yourself. Yeah, because you, you need to inject that positive energy to the team. I think so. And a team can only cope with a certain amount of, of issues, right? And, and also in small startup businesses, and I still think of our brand as very much startup, even though we're kind of 20 years old, we have that startup mentality, you know, you do want people to be very focused on the positives and the wins and to feel excited. So you find yourself a lot of the time dealing with the, the negative, but I think it gives you a great tolerance for stress because you can't stay stressed about those things. Otherwise you'd be stressed all the time. You yeah, get, absolutely. You get very relaxed about it. I'm very calm in a problem. Not me all the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe I need to run not, it for another not, 10 years to not, get there. Not me all the time either, by the way. So let's not say that, but I, I don't think 
I don't think you feel stressed the way you did in the early years yeah, as you go absolutely. through business. I think you just, you kind of also work out that the thing you're worried about is probably not going to happen. As a founder, you sometimes kind of catastrophize it for a second and you go, well, if all of the, if this happened and then this and this and this and this, and then you just for a second go. Yeah, and you get so paranoid you because go, it's your baby. It's you your go, whole life, right? And I now go, that isn't going to happen because 20 things have to go wrong for that to happen. So like, <laughs> it's not going to be a thing. This is the actual issue and I need to fix this. This this other, you know, where I've taken this to in my mind is not going to happen. That actually weirdly always calms me down to have a problem, think what's the worst thing that can happen from that problem? And then I go, well, that's never going to happen. And then I feel really calm. <laughs> Like, I love that. I think it's like probably it's probably like an illness. It's like catastrophize everything and then go, oh, that's never going to happen. That's all fine. And it's all over in a minute. You go, oh, this thing, small problems happened. What if it turned into this huge thing? Okay, it won't happen. I guess that could be a useful exercise for anyone listening or for me as well. Yeah, because I think, you know, when you actually go, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And then normally a founder, I think, will come up with something quite quite dramatic. And then you go, well, that's not going to happen because 20 other things have got to happen for that to happen. So that's like a whole new level of problem. And then the problem that you're dealing with feels quite small. You're like, okay, well, I can sort this one out because that other one's never happening. I don't know if that's like terrible advice or good advice, but it weirdly works for me. I think it is good framework to think about the worst case scenario. And then you can think, okay, this is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. That, that will be soothing. And also what you learn when you run your businesses pretty much everything is resolved, right? Whether it's time that resolves it, people that resolve it, it, it all gets resolved. Yeah. Whatever the problem is, it's yeah. like an emotional problem. It's the same thing. You just have to work through it. It does often take time. You know, we said right at the beginning, you need patience. I think it's probably the most underrated skill, right, in running your business. The yeah. level of patience with other people, with yourself, with the process, with the business, like patience is just like, you just need it in bucket loads. And you don't have to start off your business as a patient person. Like you can learn it, right? I don't think I started patient. I think I started so dynamic really and hungry. It's really hard to learn it though. It's a painful process, isn't it? It's a really painful process. I agree. It's really painful to learn to be this patient, but the reality is you have to be really patient to run a business. Agreed. And you want it to go from zero to 100 in about three seconds and everybody else. I mean, I always think that. Like, everyone else has to catch up with our idea. Like, you know, it's like a positive thing. We've got this great idea. We know where we're going to go. To give everyone else time to, like, catch up. Like, it's a positive. Like, you know, we've got this idea. We know what we're going to do. But we need to bring everyone along with us. You know, whether it's our teams or our consumers or the retailers, we're going to have to take them there. But we know we're going to get there. But it is going to take always longer than you want it to take. And you get used to also then becoming more accurate about how long things take. Absolutely. Is there anything you'd do differently? Well, I'd just be less stressed because I just think you are less stressed. Maybe it's also just aging, right? You know, I'm in my late 40s. I just think you're less stressed. I think I'd be just kinder to myself. I think as a, a woman in business, you know, like you, I raised my young kids whilst running my business. And I didn't really, I wasn't really very kind to myself. You know, I would always point to myself of like, what I was doing wrong at home, what I was doing wrong at work, you know, how I could do this better, how I could give someone else more time. And really, I just spent a, a lot of years thinking about my failings, really. What would you tell your younger self? Because I feel like I'm going through that as well. I, I always have like mum guilt. And mum guilt and work guilt and everything. And I just think, God, you know, if you're managing to raise children and run a business or, or raise children and go to work every day. Like, what an amazing thing. Like, it's, this is, it's really hard. And I think I'd just be kinder to myself and go, you're doing an okay job everywhere. And that's great. 
Like, or you did a great job at home this week and a lousy job in the office. Or you did a great job in the office this week and you could have done better at home. But like in no other environment would you be told you have to get everything perfect. And I think I really thought I needed to be perfect in my business and perfect as a mum all the time. Not sometime, like seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And I think that's really brutal. I think I would just be kinder on myself and go, you know, I've now got, you were saying when I came in, I've got grown up kids, you know, they're 20, 17 and 14. I feel like my kids are so much better off from having a hardworking mum, value of money, seeing me struggle, highs and lows, knowing it doesn't all come easy, not being spoiled. And, you know, knowing I had like, you know, good years and bad years or good days and bad days. And, you know, have I done my kids any harm? No, I feel like my kids are so rounded from this thing that's happened in our lives. And my husband also runs his own business from both of us. I feel like I've given them a gift. And I never thought when I missed something with my kids that I was giving them a gift. I mean, I would have thought I was like the worst mom missing something. And now you look back and go, your kids are fine. I was saying it to another friend who's a, a founder. I was saying, they don't become better human beings because you took them to school every day. They become better human beings because you talk to them and love them and you're a great mom. But you know, if you, if you took them to school every day or you didn't, of course it's great to sit in the car and have those chats with them. It's amazing and time is super important. But if you do that some of the time, not all the time, does that make you a bad mom? I mean, it's ridiculous. Like the pressure I think we all have on ourselves mm -hmm. to be doing all of it so well all the time, I think now I'd be a lot kinder on myself. Thank you for saying that. I really needed that. Yeah, I think it's really important. I don't know, I don't know how we get that when we've got young kids, how we share that as women to, you know, to each other, because it it's so hard to do both. I don't know why we're doing such a terrible job of not saying that to each other to go you're doing great. Like it's, it's really hard to do it all and you're doing great. And by the way, do you absolutely adore your children, adore your business? Yes. So your business knows you adore it and your children know you adore it. Like really, what are you doing wrong? Yeah. And the thing is men never have dad guilt. Never. I mean, maybe some do, but no, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. I used to always joke with my husband because in the early years he'd say to me when I had like a work thing, he'd be like, so I'm babysitting. And I'd be like, not babysitting because they're your kids. Yeah, you're parenting. <laughs> so, you're doing like, like business he, as usual. And it always made me joke. He's like, so I'm staying in and babysitting. And I was like, not really, darling, because they're, they're, they're sort of permanent. They're, they're your kids. And he's an amazing dad and he's fully yeah. hands-on and he's absolutely fantastic. But I think mentally women in a lot of situations, I'm sure not in all, but women in a lot of situations are the people that, you know, as well as running their own business and their entrepreneurial and even if their partners aren't entrepreneurs, they're running that business and they're still scheduling everything around yeah, the family. It's societal, isn't it? And part of that is also we choose to. Like, I don't know yeah. if, you know, I used to, my husband used to say to me, don't be upset about it. Just give it to me to do. And I think, no, 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 no. I'm not actually giving it to you. Like, I want to do it. Like, I want to, like, run my family. Like, I did that with myself a while ago when I was sort of, you know, giving myself a hard time. I was like, okay, so what are you going to change? So you can't give any of the kids back. They're all permanent <laughs> and you're not going to slow down your business. So actually just be nice to yourself because you're not going to change anything. So it, there's no point being negative on yourself unless you're going to change. So unless you're going to quit your business or make a fundamental change, if you know that you're committed to this business, then you then need to be kind to yourself about what you're doing elsewhere in your life because you've already decided that you're going to run this business. So then that means you can't be at home all the time. And I think that balance thing is just like so mean because you can't find a balance. Like there is no such, there is no balance. No, no balance. So I think you have to go, well, there's no such thing as a balance. I'm just gonna try my best. And that's a much better conversation. I kind of slightly hate that 
I'm going to find a balance because that makes you always feel like you're failing because you absolutely, there is no, I don't think there's a single week where you go, I did a great job at home and I did a great job in my business. As a young mum, that just never happens. So then there is no balance. So you fail before you've started. Did you have time for yourself ever? Because that's the bit I'm struggling with because I'm yeah. in business. Yeah, I mean, if you have, have young kids, kids, no, right? And like, I just have no margin. No. And I don't know about you. I had no time for myself. And the other thing I had was nothing could ever go wrong. So I was always so crammed between um, work and family that there was no, you know, if one of my kids was sick and I had to stay home, I'd be like, oh my God, that's just like, an, again, back to the catastrophizing. I'd be like, that's a disaster <laughs> because now I can't do this. Da, 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 da. And I remember just thinking in my life, there's no margin. So there's no margin for error, you know, because I'm running such a tight time schedule. I, things can't go wrong. I would say to anyone, it's so much easier with older kids. Not that older kids are easy because they come with all their own like other challenges, but it's much easier to be a working mum with older kids that are teenagers that can tell you what they care about you being at and not being at. You know, it's funny, you think that the kids so care about you being at X, Y, and Z, and when they become older, they'll tell you, oh, I'd rather go here with you on Saturday afternoon. I'd rather you, you know, took me to here. And it's not always the things that you feel like you're showing up with, with all the other mums at school. Like now my kids will be like, you know, I couldn't care less if you came to sports day, but I really want you to take me to wherever. And so that that's the bit that is also once your kids can tell you what matters to them, the pressure comes off. Because then you're not just kind of doing, like you say about society, going, well, I must go to every play, every concert, every sports day, every everything. Even if my kid doesn't like sports or isn't even in the, con you know, it's like at the back of the concert, but I must go because I must be there. You don't know that until your kids are older and they go, oh, I can't stand the concert. I don't want to be there anyway. And you're like, okay, <laughs> if you don't want to be there, I don't need to come either. I think you just feel less guilty with older children because they also have such a big life of their own. And that's the other lesson is, you know, when you're trying to be this perfect 100% mum, the reality is, is, you know, raising your children is also about like raising them, them becoming independent and then becoming adults in their own life. So actually they leave, you know, like my eldest son has left and he's gone to university. You know, if you spent your entire life obsessing about those children, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but if you do, okay, but then they leave in the end and then you've got to work out what you're doing later. And I, I think I have a lot of friends that, you know, have given everything to their kids and are now working out in their 40s and 50s what they're going to do next. Well, don't respect the fact that you've raised a family for all these years and you've got loads of kind of amazing skills. They don't employ you on that basis. So then you are a bit screwed when you're going for a job, even though you're probably a really talented person. And yeah. maybe you had a great skill from before, but everyone thinks you've, you've been out of it. And they kind of diminish you because you've just been a mum during that time. So I think they don't have it any easier either because, you know, in your 40s or 50s, you then have to work out what you want to do, you know, unless you want to play golf for eight hours a day. Like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? So that was a long answer, but I would be a lot kinder yeah. to myself, yeah. I would say. Yeah, it was so nice to hear. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like therapy for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. What's one advice you'd give an early stage founder? You want to run so fast as a, as a founder and actually it just takes time. It doesn't mean it's a bad idea, actually. doesn't mean that what you've come up with is a bad idea. I'm sure the reason so many businesses, you know, fail and, or, and people quit is because it just takes so much longer than you thought it would. And I think once you relax about the fact it takes longer and it is harder, once you know that, it's like, you know, knowledge is everything, right? Once you know it's it takes longer and it's harder, you can kind of relax and go, well, I went into this knowing it's going to take a long time and it's going to be really hard. So off I go. Yeah, it's like anything. If you studied for a, a master's now, you wouldn't go into it going, well, this is going to be easy and I'm going to get this done in a week. You'd go, I'm doing a master's. It's going to take me a couple of years. It's going to need like huge amount of my time. There's going to be papers and topics I don't understand. I'm going to have to ask questions and I'm going to fail a bit and do badly on a test and then well on something else. 
And setting up a business is the same thing. It takes a longer time and it's harder. And if you're up for that, you'll have a great time. Um, I completely agree. It's harder than you think in the beginning. But then I also think that naivety in the beginning is so great. I think it's really important. I don't think... I like like, it. When I meet founders, I try not to sort of tell them all the bad news because I feel like the naivety gives you the confidence. Yeah, the confidence and you can do things differently because you don't know. And then you do come up with great ideas, right? Because mm. you think like a consumer and you're not jaded by failure. Yeah, absolutely. So I always think when I'm talking to someone, as much as you want to kind of tell them the pitfalls, you should never take that, like that naivety is definitely for the first few years what made me successful at Nails Inc. Yeah, because absolutely. I was like, Same well, why here. can't I do it? Of course I can do it. Yeah, I can fix it. And you it. make it work. And you're so ballsy, aren't you? And I think actually you haven't really had any failure yet. That naivety is actually quite fabulous. Mm. It gets you quite far because yeah. you have such conviction. You can take people along with you. You, yeah. you believe it so much yourself. You can get everyone yeah. else along there with you yeah, as well. 100%. Yeah. So a couple of quick fires since you're a nail expert. What nail trends do you see for 2024? So there's a few nail trends. So definitely what we call kind of like fancy French internally. So like interesting ways of doing French, you know, manicure. So kind of a sort of skinnier tip, using different colorways. Um, the Manny marker pens is, is really what, that's really why we created that product because there's just such a desire to do like simple nail art, you know, French and fun things, dots. And then there's this whole kind of like, um, I'm sure you've seen it as well, but like a whole kind of like um, mob wife trend. So like a bit of glamour, like a bit of kind of old school glamour, you know, so like fashion wise, that's all like the fun kind of fake fur coats and quite glamorous and, you know, a bit of leopard, you know, and, and and some darker shades. So I think going through like second half of the year, you're going to see those like kind of glamorous, dark, rich looking shades. Before then, we're seeing like a really lovely kind of apricot, peachy um, tone. And then brown is a big trend in nail as well. So whether it's like a shimmering brown, like a, you know, kind of shimmer stacked color or just like brown, brown is definitely a big trend as well. And that plays very well into those peachy nudes as well, like peach, apricot, brown. There's lots of nail trends. I love nail trends. That's like my specialist subject. I'll keep you here for hours. Yeah, I've got a Pinterest board with nail trends. Nice. And your nails look amazing today. You look fabulous. I love it. I've got Valentine's nails. I love it. It's gorgeous. (laughs) And how do you do a perfect at-home nail? So you have to definitely do the, the layers that you know you have to do. So you have to use a base coat. You have to do your color. You don't have to do two coats because I regularly cheat and do one coat, one good coat. But you can do two. It will last longer if you do two coats. And you have to finish with a good top coat. I would always recommend a speedy top coat, but one that's very glossy because, you know, you're kind of hitting two points there. You want it to dry really fast so you don't damage your nail and you don't have to wait around because we're all short of time but you also want something that looks really glossy because in the end what you see in a manicure is the finish so that ultra gloss both from the polish and the and the top coat is all you really notice is how glossy it is that's the difference really between something that looks a bit more professional than not so I would pick your top coat very wisely get a really really glossy top coat at home I wouldn't do things like you know kind of removing cuticle particularly you know you can just push them back with an orange stick wrap into a little bit of cotton wool and then in terms of like maintenance, I would think of your cuticle or the way you think of your moisturizer, like leave it next to your toothbrush, you know, on your bedstand, next to your laptop in the office, wh- wherever you know you're going to be. Like, you know, I've started doing that with lots of products in my life. I'm, I'm really trying to be good this year and taking like my vitamins and my probiotics. And I've worked out the only way through that is it's either next to the toothbrush or it's next to the laptop because I'm never going to miss that. You know, I'm never going to not be on my laptop and I'm never not going to brush my teeth, even on a bad day. Like I'm going to achieve those two things. Um, and I would say that to you about like your cuticle yeah, oil. You know, that's like, such a great tip. I find, you know, using cuticle oil, it's kind of one of those quite therapeutic things. You know, ours comes with like a little dropper. You drop it onto each nail and you massage it in. And I find myself as I'm kind of thinking about something, doing that in the office. And like, it's a really nice little 10 seconds, you know, mm. of just like nice therapeutic, you know, giving yourself a little massage across yeah. your fingers. It's like, 
It's nice. Self-care. Little bit of self-care. And it takes seconds, like yeah. easy self-care. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much, Thea. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm so thank energized you. and so inspired. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew, and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week.